would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another he was known as the father of the atomic bomb during World War II Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer directed Los Alamos Laboratory which actually designed the first nuclear weapons what he was discussing, in a heartbreaking tone, was the first nuclear weapon explosion in history. Contrary to a somewhat common belief, the world's first nuclear explosion took place not in Japan, but in the United States, specifically the desert of New Mexico. The test was called Trinity, and most scientists predicted the yield to be about 5 kilotons, or 5,000 pounds of TNT. A single explosion far larger and more powerful than anything human beings had ever seen. But when the test took place on July 16, 1945, scientists and other observers got something larger. A lot larger. 21 kilotons. Dr. Hans Bethe, a premier nuclear physicist who later served on our board for decades, stared directly at the explosion. In turn, he went completely blind for 30 seconds. Dr. George Kistiakowski, a physical chemist who became President Eisenhower's science advisor and later chaired our board, was knocked to the ground, more than five miles away from the blast. The covert and very extensive program that ultimately produced the bombs used for the Trinity test and against Japan was known as the Manhattan Project. That program's origins also have a relationship to the center. In 1939, Dr. Leo Szilard, who later founded our organization, wrote a letter to President Franklin Roosevelt outlining the risks of a nuclear chain reaction, then an exciting novel physics concept, mainly that it could be used for an unfathomably powerful weapon, and that the Germans may get it first. Fearing that his name may not be enough to sway the president, Dr. Szilard asked Dr. Albert Einstein to sign the letter. Einstein agreed. After President Roosevelt read the letter, he took actions that ultimately created the Manhattan Project. When the Cold War and ensuing nuclear arms race between the US and Soviet Union began, many of the brilliant scientists who first created the bomb began advocating for policies that would reduce nuclear dangers. That included Dr. Oppenheimer, Dr. Zillard, Dr. Beta, and Dr. Kistiakowski. There were some notable exceptions, though. One in particular was Dr. Edward Teller, who was known as the father of the hydrogen bomb, a much more powerful type of nuclear weapon first tested in the 1950s. Dr. Teller advocated for regular nuclear weapon tests, an enormous nuclear arsenal, and at one point proposed a 10,000 megaton nuclear weapon. That is 670,000 times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Japan. He was one of the inspirations for the infamous Dr. Strangelove in the dark comedy movie of the same name, released in 1964. 
The movie focuses on a rogue general and all the things that go wrong before a U.S.-Soviet nuclear war. It parodies warnings of the era about a so-called missile gap, the false belief that the Soviet Union had more and better missiles than the United States, as well as the general hawkish nuclear thinking of the time. In this scene, Dr. Strangelove proposes placing hundreds of thousands of Americans underground for a hundred years to ride out a nuclear war. Mr. President, I would not rule out the chance to preserve a nucleus of human specimens. It would be quite easy at the bottom of uh, some of our deeper mine shafts. Radioactivity would never penetrate a mine some thousands of feet deep. But here's the amazing thing. The Cold War may have ended, but some of the thinking being satirized in Dr. Strangelove never went away. And in fact, some of the progress we have made against that thinking is at risk, right now, in 2017. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. It's been 75 years since the Manhattan Project commenced and 72 years since the Trinity tests began the nuclear era. Since then, the world has endured a terrifying nuclear arms race with tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, followed by a major reduction since the end of the Cold War. Even so, around 15,000 nuclear weapons still exist worldwide, over 90% of those in the United States and Russia. Though a good portion of the reductions since the end of the Cold War have been unilateral decisions, major progress has also been made due to arms control treaties between the US and Russia. There are two really critical ones still in effect, one negotiated under a Republican president and the other under a Democratic president. Welcome to the White House. This ceremony and the treaty we're signing today are both excellent examples of the rewards of patience. That's President Reagan announcing the signing of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty, which banned, and still bans, the testing or deployment of any ground-based missile system that can travel between 500 and 5,500 kilometers, nuclear or non-nuclear. This treaty got rid of a lot of nuclear weapons deployed by the U.S. and Europe, as well as deployed Soviet nuclear weapons that were particularly dangerous. On the Soviet side, over 1,500 deployed warheads will be removed, and all ground-launched intermediate-range missiles, including the SS-20s, will be destroyed. On our side, our entire complement of Pershing-2 and ground-launched cruise missiles, with some 400 deployed warheads, will all be destroyed. But there were still a lot of other nuclear weapons left, with ranges outside of the INF Treaty. So, in 1991, President Reagan's successor, President George H.W. Bush, finished the negotiations of an agreement called START, or the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, that barred both the U.S. and Russia from deploying more than 6,000 strategic nuclear warheads each. That agreement expired in 2009. And then... I just concluded a productive phone call with President Medvedev, and I'm pleased to announce that after a year of intense negotiations, the United States and Russia have agreed to the most comprehensive arms control agreement in nearly two decades. That treaty, known as the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START, was signed in 2010 and fully goes into effect in February 2018. 
The treaty limits the number of deployed strategic nuclear warheads on each side to 1,550. In addition, it also allows U.S. officials to inspect Russian nuclear facilities 18 times per year, and vice versa. Both of these treaties, the INF Treaty that bans certain missiles depending on range, and the New START Agreement that puts a cap on all other nuclear weapons, had senior military backing and were given U.S. Senate approval, as required by the U.S. Constitution, with overwhelming bipartisan majorities. All of that sounds great, right? The problem is both New START and the INF Treaty are in danger. According to news reports, President Trump isn't a big fan of New START, denouncing it as a bad deal during a phone call with Russian President Putin. This took place after the president had to ask one of his aides what exactly the treaty even does. Yeah, that actually happened. This is serious for a number of reasons, but it comes down to this. New START expires in 2021, but there is an option to extend the treaty to 2026. If we don't extend the treaty, the consequences would be severe. More on that in a moment. But then there's the INF Treaty. At this point, it's very clear that Russia has built, tested, and deployed a system within the 500 to 5,500 kilometer range banned by that agreement. This is bad. It should be roundly condemned. It's a complicated situation, but most of us in the nuclear world, regardless of different points of view, think that the U.S. should continue trying to pressure Russia back into compliance through diplomacy. But there's a small cohort in Congress that wants to do something else, build and potentially deploy in Europe our own missile system that could violate the treaty. Every year, Congress reviews and approves the budget and operations of the Defense Department, and then the President signs off. That's Alexandra Bell, our senior policy director. As a State Department official, she worked on arms control treaties for years. It's called the National Defense Authorization Act. This year, the NDAA will do some serious damage to the institutions and agreements that have kept us safe since the Cold War. Among the worst issues in the House bill is a provision that would move us to get out of the INF Treaty. Is that even constitutional? The Constitution is pretty clear on the fact that the President has the lead on treaties. The bill goes further in that it calls for the development of a missile that would actually violate the INF Treaty. Okay, so let's say we build an INF-violating missile. An intermediate-range missile would need to be deployed in Europe, right? Would our European allies even want that missile? No, no one in NATO is signing up to host this missile. No one in the Pentagon is even asking for this. The administration clearly said they don't want Congress to dictate their response to the Russian violation of INF. It gets worse though, right? Unfortunately. Another provision calls for blocking funds to extend New START unless we can certify that Russia's back in compliance with INF. So what's the logic here exactly? Russia is violating one treaty, so we should punish them, I use those words in quotes, I guess, by relieving them of obligations under another treaty? Yeah, I wouldn't call it logic. Okay, but what would be the consequences of not extending New START? <sighs> Where do I begin? Vladimir Putin could deploy as many strategic nuclear weapons as he wanted. Our military and intelligence community, which support New START, would lose vital information on Russia's nuclear program. And basically, we will have restarted an arms race. This kind of irrational thinking might be funny if it weren't so deadly serious. If the current bill becomes law, we're talking about Cold War 2.0. We need people to get educated on these issues, and we need them to talk to their leaders about what kind of future they want. I'm guessing more nuclear weapons is not on their priority list. We open this episode with some history about the Trinity Test. 
We did that for a reason, and not just because the anniversary of the test recently took place. You see, it's not just arms control treaties that are at risk at the moment. What's also at risk is the bipartisan consensus that we don't need to build and test new nuclear weapons. Since President Trump took the oath of office, there have been renewed calls from some corners to build new, so-called low-yield nuclear weapons. The Trump administration is currently undergoing a nuclear posture review that, when finished, could actually set this plan in motion. We won't get into the full debate on this, but the bottom line is simple. Since the end of the Cold War, there has been a bipartisan consensus that the United States does not need to build any new nuclear weapons. Making sure our current weapons are safe and reliable? Definitely. But building new ones? Unnecessary. Here's how this relates to the Trinity test. Beginning with Trinity, the United States has tested the most nuclear weapons on Earth, about a thousand of them. But in addition to the bipartisan consensus against building new nuclear weapons, there has also been a bipartisan consensus against the need to test them. That's why we haven't tested a nuclear weapon since the end of the Cold War, either. Instead, our nuclear weapon laboratories test the stockpile with supercomputers and other non-explosive methods. Every year, they're able to certify that everything is in order and no explosive nuclear testing is needed. But what if we build a new nuclear weapon, one that's never been tested before? The pressure to test at this point, even if only political pressure, would be palpable. And if we start testing, other countries like Russia, China, India, and Pakistan would likely say to themselves, well, if the Americans are testing, we should too. We touched on this in a previous episode, but it's worth reiterating. If you live in Nevada or Utah, this would be particularly terrible, because the Nevada test site near Las Vegas is likely where new nuclear tests would take place, and Utah is just downwind. Instead of advocating for programs that would match a Russian violation with our own violation, or build and potentially test new nuclear systems or weapons, we should focus, at the very least, on maintaining arms control agreements and policies that have bipartisan support. We know a lot of these issues seem far off or maybe more difficult to grasp compared to Obamacare repeal or other front page news articles, but these issues are real, and they affect us all. Many of the scientists who designed and built the first nuclear weapons believed in nuclear arms control for a reason. These weapons, as Dr. Oppenheimer said at the beginning of this episode, could create destruction never seen before, even destroy entire worlds. And for the first time since the 1980s, we're looking at a nuclear arms race on the horizon. For the sake of our safety and security, we cannot let that happen. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. And if you want to know more about New START or the INF Treaty, check out the fact sheets on our website www.armscontrolcenter.org slash factsheets. And factsheets is just one word. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.